Go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians 3. <clears throat> and while you're turning there, if it's all right, I'm going to give you just a, a, a kind of an overview or report on the Palmieri project that Pastor uh, led you this morning to choose to support, and we're very, very grateful for that. Um, Pastor has mentioned several times already that this is a project that is uh, a translation of Scripture for an unwritten language. There are over 3,700 languages in the world today that still do not have one verse of Scripture. And over 3,000 of those, approximately 3,000 of those, are, are still unwritten languages. And I know that may be hard for us to believe in this modern age, 2019, with all the technology and uh, equipment that we have and language abilities, but 3,000 languages still have nothing in print, no alphabet. And so the, the best person qualified to give you this, what I'm about to give you is Tim Cleghorn, who leads the project. He's a very gifted linguist. Uh, we have our training school in India that I mentioned in Sunday school this morning <clears throat> for training Bible translators, and Brother Cleghorn wrote the textbook that we use in our phonetics class which is the first class taught in, the, in a series of classes on linguistics. And so it's over 500 pages. Brother Cleghorn put that together. So he, he really has a handle on all this stuff. But, but putting a, an unwritten language into written form starts with what's called the International Phonetic Alphabet, which is, uh, I think, about 36 characters. A lot of the letters look like our letters in our Roman, Roman alphabet. But some of them look different, like an upside-down E and other letters with accent marks and so forth. But any sound produced by the human voice can be reproduced on paper with those letters. So it starts using the phonetic alphabet and, and compiling a dictionary. So what's your word for table? They say the word, you write it down. What's the word for ceiling, floor, uh, air, sky? Just Can you imagine trying to do that and catalog the words of a language? I was talking with our, our uh, associate in, in uh, Nepal that's translating into Tibetan languages, and they were, they were putting down the language for the Loa Tibetan people. And I said, how are you doing with your progress? And he said, we're up to 43,000 words. That's a lot of work, isn't it? So this process of putting the language into writing can take two to four or five years, depending on, on how many in your team are working on it. Once you get it into writing, you, you have your dictionary compiled, then you need to decide which script you're going to use. So there are no languages really that use the International Phonetic Alphabet as their final script. So for example, in the Tibetan language, we are using a combination of Tibetan and Nepali script, which is associated with Sanskrit languages from the Dev or Devanagari uh, script, it's called. In Central Asia, where the Pamiri project is, we're probably going to, e we're, we're either going to use an Arabic script, because there are a lot of Muslims in that, that area, and even though a lot of them can't speak Arabic, they're used to seeing it in print, so that, that is what's common in their area. You don't want to use something totally strange to the people. Or the other script we might be using would be the Devanagari script, which from Central Asia to South Asia is not too much of a leap, and they've also seen that. So then you, you transfer what you've compiled in your dictionary to the script of that, that you're going to use for that language. Then you write primers to teach people how to read it. And so part of Bible translation work is always, it always includes literacy training. Um, some I've had, you, people have asked, well, if, if they don't have a written language, those people can't read, why are you giving them a written book? 
we believe very strongly in the necessity of the written word of God. That's how he gave it to us. And I could take you all, I could, I could preach a whole lesson on that tonight. I, I, I could do that. But um, we're going to give them the written word, but we're going to teach them how to read it. God helping us. We're going to train them to read their own language. And then while we're doing all that, we're trying to win people to Christ who are native speakers of that language and disciple them in the faith so we can train them to help us with the translation of the scripture in their own language. We don't, we don't see it as a viable option for an outsider to go into a foreign culture and language and give them a Bible, translate a Bible for them in their language. Because with 20 years of study, you're never gonna learn all the nuances of that language like those people who've, who've been speaking it all their life. And so you can, you can only imagine the challenges that go with that, and that's what Brother uh, Cleghorn has tackled. A good report that he gave recently was <clears throat> he went to a Waukee village, and he has recently moved to um, a, a town called Horag, which is right across the river from Afghanistan. This is in southeastern Tajikistan, and you can look across the river into Afghanistan. And from that city, there, it's a more, it's a more uh, central location for where these uh, Pamiri people groups live. <clears throat> and recently, just a week or a week and a half ago, he was in a, a village, and this is his second time to go to that village, and they met a Waukee family that they believe are believers. Now, listen to the challenge of this. In, in that society, sometimes it's, it's uh, matriarchal, so the mother chose to believe in Christ, that makes the whole family Christian. But that doesn't mean they've all believed on Christ. It doesn't mean they're all born again. So the challenge of discipling those people and, 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 and finding, getting down to the root of this to see if they really are believers and if everyone in the family has become a believer. But the good news is these folks heard about Jesus uh, somewhere, in some way, we don't even know how, and, and they talk about being believers in Christ. And that's exciting, isn't it? So I firmly believe this. When, when, we, uh, when we get ready to launch a project, we start praying at the very beginning of the project before anyone ever goes to the field. Lord, we believe you want this done more than we want it done. And we believe that since you've burdened us to do it, you've also burdened others to get it done. And we're looking forward to the day when you will introduce us to people who can help accomplish this project. Isn't that exciting? And that, that way we don't have to push doors open and we don't have to make things happen we just have to yield ourselves to the Lord and let him use us to open the doors he's already been working to open. And you're one of the answers to that because you're going to help support that, this project. It's exciting. I could tell you stories with all of our projects how the Lord has made that happen. It's just, I don't have time. Too many amazing stories. But we're looking forward to the day that God will introduce us to the Waukee speakers. That, that he will, if they're not saved, we can win them to Christ and disciple them. If they are saved, we can train them, and, and they will help us put the Word of God in their own language. That's exciting, isn't it? I, I can't tell you how exciting it is to be a part of that, and, and also can't tell you how, how um, I can't give you a good description of Brother Cleghorn. You're just going to have to have him here sometime since you're supporting the project. He can come and report to you and give you firsthand knowledge of what's going on there. And uh, he actually just arrived in the States on Friday. His brother's getting married next week. And he came back for the wedding, but they're only going to be here about eight weeks. So I don't know if it'll work out in the next eight weeks. But if not, the next time he comes to the States, it'd be great if you could meet him. And uh, the things that I talked about this morning in Sunday school with uh, cross-cultural communication and learning languages and so forth, 
Brother Tim can open your eyes to that in a far, far, far better way than I even attempted to do this morning. So I'm looking forward to the day that you can meet him and get to know his fine family. 2 Thessalonians 3. Are we ready to get to the message? <clears throat> Let me stop and pray, please, before we get into this. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your precious word, the gift of your word, and the ability we have, or the, the gift we have to read it in our own language. As Pastor said a few moments ago, even if the Bible weren't in our language, we would desire to know it because of the work you've done in our hearts. But we know that by your grace, you have caused this book to be in our language. Lord, help us also to know that by your grace, you desire for it to be in all languages. You want them to have it as, just as much as you wanted us to have it. And help us to know that you want to use us for that. And thank you for the willingness of this church to partner in such an endeavor. We ask you to speak to us from this truth and this passage of Scripture tonight and burden our hearts about those who are serving on the field and the work that's being accomplished for the mission of God and how you want us to be part of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians 3. Read the first or follow along as I read, please, the first three verses of this chapter. <clears throat> Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Finally, brethren, pray for us. I'm going to speak to you tonight on the subject, the heart cry of the missionary. Prayer was the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul. He talked about it all through his epistles. Forty times, according to my calculations, at least 40 times in Paul's epistles, he spoke of the need for prayer, either directing that at individual Christians or directing that at churches. Forty times he talked about prayer. Let me give you three thoughts tonight from this passage of Scripture taken right from the verses, and I want to approach it first of all in a more general way and just talk about praying for one another. Praying for one another. He begins this text with these words, Finally, brethren, pray for us. I want you, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write down these passages of Scripture. And I want to encourage you tonight to think about your prayers for others. And, and I'm talking about people in your church. I'm talking about the missionaries you support. I'm talking about your pastor. I'm talking about your own family. But what do you say to God when you pray for these folks? Is your prayer, forgive me if this is not a good word, but is your prayer generic? Do you say, God bless my family? Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that. I encourage you to say that. Uh, I love praying Numbers 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. I love praying that. It's a wonderful prayer of blessing upon someone that you love and know. But sometimes I'm afraid our prayers are too generic, and, we say, and, and, and sometimes I'm afraid that our prayers focus too much on on our, our uh, temporal life, our physical bodies, than they do our spiritual needs. There are several times that Paul talked about prayer and praying for one another, and he illustrated it by praying a prayer in his epistles for those to whom he was writing. Turn with me, please, if you would, just back a couple of three pages or four or whatever it is in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. 
Now hold your place in 2 Thessalonians, but, but let's look at Ephesians 3. Starting with verse 14, here's what Paul says to the Philippian believers. I'm sorry, Ephesian believers. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now here Paul begins somewhat, some of what I call very substantive prayer requests. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Now, can I ask you this question? Have you ever heard, have you ever gotten an email or a letter or a phone call from someone and they said to you something like this, I just wanted you to know God put you on my heart and I'm praying for you today. You ever gotten that? I was sitting in my office working one day and it was, it was a particularly difficult day. And I and, uh, got an email that was just two sentences from a very dear friend of mine and he said, I just thought of you today and I wanted you to know I'm praying for you. I don't know what you're going through today, but God put you on my heart and I'm praying for you. I can't tell you what that did to my heart. Now, the, re the resource of a friend who prays for you can be very encouraging, can't it? If you had to rely on, on strength, let's, let's put strength in a bucket. <laughs> How big a bucket of strength do you think you have? How big a bucket of strength do you think it is uh, if, if we call this bucket the prayers and encouragement of your friends? Maybe that's bigger than our bucket. But notice what the verse said. Paul said that he would grant you according to what? The riches of who? His glory. To be strengthened with might by what? By His Spirit in the inner man. How big do you think the bucket is of what God can do for you, the strength that God can give you? I would suggest there's no end to that. That's an infinite, infinite amount of help and an infinite amount of strength. So if God will strengthen you by His Spirit in the inner man, you can go a lot further than you could ever go on the encouragement of my word. So when you pray for one another, ask God to strengthen their hearts, to strengthen their inner man. Paul said, the, our outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day in reliance upon the Lord. That is, that is how we keep going, by what God does inside us, in our hearts, to strengthen us and carry us forward. Notice what else he says. And, and, and an entire sermon could be preached on this passage. I, I'm just touching on it. The, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able, notice this, I'm praying that you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. What if we prayed for each other that we would understand and comprehend the love of God? You know, we're independent Baptists and we talk a lot about our strength and our commitment and our faithfulness and our diligence and our hard work and our serving the Lord. I personally believe the greatest motivating factor in the Christian life is to know the love of Christ. I think if you truly could comprehend the love of God, you would never again struggle to obey Him. The allure of sin would lose its allure. The power of temptation would lose its impact on your heart. If we could just understand, we would never struggle to trust Him or to obey Him. How would it change my life if I understood the love of Christ? Paul said, I am constrained by the love of Christ. I'm compelled to move forward. I, I, I live and I move and I have my being and it's, and it's in the love of Christ and what He's done for me. So that would change our lives, wouldn't it? And then this phrase right here, 
that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. The Bible says in Colossians that Christ, in, in, in Him, speaking of Christ, that in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we know that's referring to the incarnation of Christ and the fact that He was all man, but He was all God at the same time. And we can't be that because we're, we're not deity. But what would it be like, what would it, how would it change my life if I were to be filled with the fullness of God? I think I could walk in the right direction, don't you? I think I could stand against temptation, don't you? We could turn to several others, and don't turn to these for the sake of time, but in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 11, we find this request, to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will. Isn't that a great prayer to pray for somebody? Lord, I pray for Jim. I pray that he would know exactly what you would have him to do today as he tries to serve you. Filled with the knowledge of what God wants as you walk through this life. He says in that same passage that you might walk worthy. He said, being fruitful <coughs> in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I said it this morning. I believe the knowledge of God is the number one pursuit of the Christian life should be the number one pursuit of the Christian life. So Paul prays here, I'm praying that you will increase, <coughs> pardon me, increase in the knowledge of God. I encourage you to look at, second, not now, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. In that passage, he said that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. These are powerful prayers to pray for each other, aren't they? And so I, I'm first just approaching this in a general, general way where Paul is referring to, to the need for us to pray for one another and illustrating it by his own prayers for those that he wrote these epistles to. So 40 times Paul talked about prayer. Listen to this. Six times Paul asked others to pray for him. You find that in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Romans 15.30, which we looked at in Sunday school this morning, Ephesians 6.19, Colossians 4.3. Those are some of the passages. Who would think Paul needed prayer? Wasn't he one of the boldest, most courageous apostles, most, uh, most courageous Christians you've ever read about anywhere, anytime? I've read a lot of missionary stories and biographies. I've never read anybody who impressed me as much as the Apostle Paul. He was so bold with the gospel. He was so courageous, even in the face of the strongest opposition. In Acts chapter 20, when they were challenging him not to go to Jerusalem, they said, you go there, you're going to die uh, Agabus prophesied and said, uh, put, put it, uh, wrap Paul's girdle around his wrist, and he said, this is what's going to happen to the man who goes to Jerusalem. You're going to be bound. They, uh, the four daughters of Philip prophesied in Acts 21, said, you're going to die if you go to Jerusalem. Basically, they were telling him that. And you know what Paul said in response to all that, that threat of persecution? He said, none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I know you're concerned about my physical safety and, and my health and well-being, but you need to understand I'm concerned about the will of God. And he said in, uh, in Acts 20, verse 22, Behold, I go, bound in the Spirit. Paul was literally, that's a figurative expression, but he, he, he literally meant, I am chained to the leadership of the Spirit in my life, and I'm going to Jerusalem because that's where I'm being directed. But here's my point. If Paul needed the one who saw God in the flesh, or in, in his resurrected body at least, and perhaps in the flesh before his crucifixion, if Paul the apostle needed the supporting prayer of his brothers and sisters in Christ, how much more do you and I need it? 
This speaks, I believe, of the relationship we all have in Christ. We are one body. And so let me ask, have you ever felt this great weight, this, this urgent need for prayer from your friends, the supporting prayers of fellow believers? Have you ever felt that in your heart? Have you ever gone through something where you thought, I just hope people are praying for me right now? Because I sure do need it. I'll tell you what you're hoping. You're not hoping, you're not hoping that people will say, God bless so and so. You're hoping that people will take your name to the throne of God and intercede on your behalf in a real way. And I'm just suggesting, as we approach this into just a general sense, first of all, you need the prayers of each other. And may I say that people sitting on this side of the auditorium, you have needs that people sitting over here you don't know about. And, the, and it goes both ways. And so it behooves us to pray one for another, substantively. Real, serious, genuine requests for God to move and act on their behalf, work in their lives to draw them closer to Him and sustain them through difficult times. May I, may I tell you with confidence that your pastor prays for you. Uh, I, I, this is a good man right here. Can I get an amen right there? Amen. It's a good man right here and he loves you and he prays for you. I know he does. But I want to flip that coin around too and tell you he needs your prayers. I'm so glad he has this opportunity as he described this morning to get away for a few days. But you know what I find to be true in many places? I find that we expect the pastor to feed us and lead us and counsel us and, and visit us when we're sick and marry off our children and, and minister to us when we're grieving over the loss of a loved one. We expect him to do all that stuff for us, but we don't take the time daily to pray for him. That's a shame. Uh, people get upset because the pastor didn't visit them when they were sick. Uh, well, are you praying for your pastor? I don't think we would get up uh, as I, I don't think we get upset with our pastor as frequently if we were genuinely praying for him, would we? Um, what if you prayed for your pastor? Think about this. What if you prayed for your pastor to be filled with all the fullness of God? Could I tell you? I don't ever want my pastor. Our home church is outside of Indianapolis, Indiana and we get to be there once in a while, but I don't ever want to go to church and hear my pastor give a counseling lecture. I want him to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so when he stands behind that pulpit and he opens this book, he delivers a message to me from the Lord. Why do we expect that to happen and we don't pray for him? I want every decision my pastor makes to be filled with the knowledge of his will. So let's pray these things for our pastor. Can I get an amen right there? I know you do pray for him, and I encourage you to do it with more substance even than you have before. So now let's dig deeper, if we can, into this request. <clears throat> Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians to a suffering, persecuted church, people going through very hard times. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, he said, Ye have received the word of God in much affliction, affliction. So listen to this. He wrote it to a persecuted church. He wrote it from a hard place called Corinth where he was suffering himself. Let me read this to you quickly. Paul's second missionary journey had been a very difficult one. After traveling through Asia Minor, strengthening the churches, he crossed the Aegean Sea to Greece. He healed a demon-possessed girl in Philippi, and that sparked a riot. Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into prison. After being released, they were forced to leave the city. They went to Thessalonica where persecution forced them to flee from there to Berea. 
Persecution from Thessalonica followed them to Berea, and they were forced to escape the danger there, and they went to Athens. His sermon was largely ignored at Athens. Then he left Athens and walked 53 miles to Corinth. That doesn't sound like a walk in the park yet, does it? It's a hard ministry. Corinth was perhaps the most wicked city on the face of the earth at that time. The term Corinthian came to mean decadence and recklessness. The term Corinthianize came to mean the practice of whoredom and fornication. Towering 1,500 feet above Corinth was the Acropolis on which stood the Temple of Venus, also known as Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And every evening, a thousand temple prostitutes descended into the city to apply their trade. Corinth was a cesspool of immorality. You could liken it to the Las Vegas Strip. You could liken it to Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California, full of debauchery and ungodliness. In Corinth, Paul had become so discouraged that Jesus himself appeared to Paul in a vision. In 2 Corinthians 18, verses 9 and 10, the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision to encourage him to stay right here and keep preaching, and, and, and no one's going to hurt you. And, and the Lord made this amazing statement to Paul. He said, I have much people in this city. I'm sure that was great news to Paul because he couldn't find anybody at that time. Paul described his church planting ministry in Corinth as one characterized by weakness and fear and much trembling, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 3. Faced with the enormous task and the challenges of the gospel in Corinth, Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica, from Corinth to Thessalonica said, brethren, pray for us. So here's the real request. Let's go deeper now. Point number two, not only should we pray for one another, but Paul says here, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. So number two, we're going to talk about praying for the advance of the gospel. Praying for the advance of the gospel. Paul's request was not a selfish one. It was not, please pray about my bursitis. Pray about the, the surgery I'm going to have. Nothing wrong with those requests, but Paul's request was for the advance of the gospel. That was the heart cry of his prayer request. The word, uh, the, the, the phrase here, free course, is an athletic term, and it simply means to spread, spread rapidly, to run, to speed ahead, to make progress. It's an athletic picture of a runner pressing himself to run faster in a race. So Paul's request here is not just pray for me, but pray that God would use me in the advancing of the gospel. Here I am in Corinth preaching to hard hearts, to people who are unreceptive to the truth, and I need the power of the gospel to impact their hearts. Pray that the gospel will go forward, that the gospel will be free of hindrances, that the, heart, that the power of Satan would be bound in the darkness of these people's lives and their hearts would be receptive to the truth, that the gospel would impact them, would pierce the darkness they live in. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 6, 18, And for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may, make, may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He said it this way in Colossians 4, 3, uh, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. We read it in Romans 15, 30 this morning, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. And prior to that, he said, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit. 
Do you know what has power? The Word of God has power. We don't need to pray for the Word of God to have power. It has power. We need to pray for the power of the Word of God to break the darkness of this world, to pierce the darkness of this world. I'm going to be honest with you tonight. I was, I was taught in my college years, I was taught that as a preacher, I needed to pray for God to empower me as a preacher. And I did for years. I prayed, Lord, give me power as I preach today. Lord, give me power as I preach today. And I'm telling you as clear as I'm talking to you right now, one, one Sunday morning, I think it was perhaps, I prayed that prayer, Lord, give me power as I preach today. And it was as, it was as if the voice of God spoke to me audibly and said, this isn't about you. And I learned, I'm still learning, I'm not arrived, obviously, but I learned that it isn't about the power God gives the preacher, it's about the power of the word through the preacher. I've preached, I'll, I'll confess this, I've preached many times, Pastor, and maybe you've experienced this too, I've preached when I finished my sermon and I sat down on the platform, I thought to myself, it might have been better if I hadn't even gotten up there today. Because it just seemed to fall on deaf ears and it seemed to... It seemed to be, forgive me, but it seemed to be spoken through a hollow vessel. I don't know if it was because I didn't prepare enough, maybe I didn't pray enough, but it just seemed to fall flat. But there have been plenty of other times when I stood and preached and I could sense and know the power of God ministering through His Word. And I could see people's hearts affected. And people would come to the altar and pray and tell me after the service, Pastor, your message today, God spoke to my heart about this and, and convicted me about this. And the power of the Word of God through the preaching is what we're looking for here. Amen. This morning, I, by the way, I've heard way too much preaching that I believe is devoid of power because it's devoid of the truth. And I'm grateful for a pastor like yours who unfolds the Word of God from you, for you from Sunday to Sunday. This morning we talked about missionaries with romanticized ideas about the mission field. When I get to the field, I'm going to this unreached people group where they've never heard the gospel. They've never heard the name of Jesus. And you know what a lovely name the name of Jesus is. And when I get there and share the name of Jesus with these wonderful people, they're going to fall on their knees and embrace Jesus Christ. And it's going to be a great, great ministry. And when they get there, they realize it's a war. It's a war. It's a spiritual war. Listen carefully to this. Those people don't want Jesus. Those people are comfortable in their ceremonial rituals. Those people are comfortable in their hollow religions and their empty uh, uh, ceremonies. And those people are afraid of what will happen to their families if they change religions. The power of Satan has them in the, in the grip they don't want out of because they're afraid to get out of, they're afraid what the evil spirits will do to their family. And you know what can break that? The Listen carefully, the power of the word fueled by the prayers of God's people. There are missionaries tonight in hard places that are proclaiming the gospel, but no one is listening. And their hearts are grieved. And they desire your prayers. I want you to notice in our text, at the end of verse 1, pray that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified. Look at the last phrase, even as it is with you. 
I encourage you later to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and you find out that Paul is commending the Thessalonian church for their example to the world. And he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, Our gospel came not unto you in word only, verse 5, if you want to look at it quick, just a couple of pages back. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes, sake, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Verses 7, 8, and 9, he says, You became examples to Macedonia and Achaia, and the word of the Lord sounded forward from you, and we don't even need to tell people about it because they've heard about it from you. So what, here's what Paul's saying. To the Thessalonian church, from Corinth, where no one is listening, would you please pray that what the word of the Lord did among you will happen here in Corinth. That's the heart cry of the missionary. You're a church in, 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 in which the Lord works every Sunday. You have a pastor that opens the word and desires and, and strives to preach the word. And God uses his word every Sunday here, doesn't he? And the missionary visiting here senses what kind of preacher he is and what kind of receptive hearts you have to the word of God and senses the work of God taking place in this location. And the missionary goes to the field and he longs to see that where he is. It's the cry of his heart. If I could just preach the word of God in these fiercely guarded strongholds of the devil... Tibetan Buddhism, I said this morning, for 3,000 years has been a stronghold of the devil that he is guarding with every power he has. We're talking here about the word of the Lord having free course among people who are in complete spiritual darkness and complete blindness. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel is the image of God should shine unto them. These, these, these fiercely guarded strongholds will not be penetrated without the prayers of God's people. And so I believe this prayer request charges the church with the critical and serious responsibility of praying for those we send to the hard places. How are we doing with this? I'm not being unkind, but the average prayer for the missionaries that we support is, God bless our missionaries. Let's get deeper. Can we do that? Let's go deeper than that. E.M. Bounds, a hundred years ago, wrote this book entitled Prayer and Missions. And he gave the church some warnings. He said, we can get focused on the needs, the methods, and the strategy, and we can forget prayer. You know, there's 3,700 languages, I said a few moments ago, that don't have one word of Scripture. There's 7,000 people groups, 7,000 plus people groups that are considered unreached, which means they have no access to the truth. There's no Bible for them to read. There's no church for them to go to. There's no missionary preaching the gospel anywhere near where they live. We can get so focused on the need, we forget about prayer. Here's what Ian e. Bounds said. Let me give you a quote. The key of all missionary success is prayer. That key is in the hands of the home churches. The trophies won by our Lord in heathen lands will be won by praying missionaries, not by professional workers. 
more especially this, uh, will this success be won by saintly praying in the churches at home. Listen to this carefully. The home church on her knees, fasting and praying, is the great base of spiritual supplies, the sinews of war, and the pledge of victory in this dire and final conflict. You know what he's saying? It's on us. Look at this quote. The home church, he also warned, by the way, that we can get focused on giving and forget praying. The home church has done but a paltry thing when she has furnished the money to establish missions and support her missionaries. Money is important, but money without prayer, listen to this, is powerless in the face of the darkness, the wretchedness, and the sin in unchristianized lands. Prayerless giving breeds barrenness and death. Poor praying at home is the reason or solution of poor results in the foreign field. Prayerless giving is the secret of all crises in the missionary movements of the day. Powerful quotes, aren't they? It's on us. That's how we need to look at it. You say, well, isn't part of it on the missionary? I think the missionary go, needs to go to the field knowing that it's on him. But the missionary needs to go to the field knowing that we think it's on us. And we're there for him. We're praying with him. Here's the third thought I want to give you, and I'm, and I'm almost finished. Praying for one another, praying for those who advance the gospel, and thirdly, praying for those who carry the gospel. Now, we're praying for the advance of the Word of God, the, 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 that the Word of God would have free course. But now we need, we need to pray for those who are carrying that Word to the unreached places of our world. Notice what Paul says in verse, three, or verse 2, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Have you ever thought about how unreasonable and ridiculous it is for people to persecute Christians? Do you know what I've, I believe, and this is my own observations, but I think all religions have three things in common. I don't care if you're talking about in America or in Tibet. Everybody wants a relationship with their creator. Where did I come from? Who am I? Who made me? And how can I know him? Everybody wants that. Number two, everybody wants to be absolved from the guilt that they feel. Not all religions call it sin. Not all religions call it guilt. But everybody has this sense of unworthiness before the Creator who made me, because God put that in our hearts. We could go, we could, we could spend a while there too. But everybody wants to be absolved of this. They want peace in their heart. And number three, everybody wants a place where they are free from this guilt and they have eternal paradise. It's called heaven for some, it's called nirvana for the Hindus, it's called by other names, it's called paradise by the Muslims. But everybody wants those three things. And may I suggest to you that the Christian faith is the only one that provides those three things in reality. But if you preach to them that there is a God who made you and who loves you and wants you to come to himself and he can forgive your sins and he can give you a home in heaven someday, Christians are persecuted. Isn't that unreasonable? The word Paul used here is not by accident. It's unreasonable. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about this? Nobody's ever been persecuted for reading Shakespeare. But people are killed for reading the Bible. I, I know and you know there's a spiritual element to all this. This is spiritual warfare. The devil's behind the persecution of all Christians anywhere, anytime. But it's unreasonable, isn't it? Do you know where our associate Tim Cleghorn lives across the river from Afghanistan? That the Taliban 
and the, uh, what's the other Muslim group that's, that's uh, ISIS and the Taliban pass through that area frequently. And he said when they come through town, everybody just kind of gets out of their way. But at any time, at any time, Brother Cleghorn could be in serious danger. He's got a wife and a four-year-old and a two-year-old, two boys. We need to pray for Tim Cleghorn. Somebody said the safest place to be is in the will of God. Not true. Because all over this world today, people are suffering for their faith. Today, people died for their faith. It is not always the safest place to be, but the center of God's will is always the best place to be. And Brother Cleghorn and his family are living in the best place for them because that's where God has directed them to be. But let's not leave them out there alone. Can we pray for them? Can we pray for their safety? Can we pray for God to protect their lives? Can we pray for God to blind the eyes of their enemies? When uh, I read a book when I was a teenager called Brother Andrew. How many of you heard of that book? Brother Andrew, as a, as a younger man in his 20s, smuggled Bibles across the borders of communist countries back in the 60s and 70s. And he would have a trunk full of Bibles and the officials at the, at the border would check the vehicle and they would open up the trunk of his car and look at the Bibles and close the lid and tell him to go on. Because his prayer before he uh, drove up to the checkpoint was, please blind the eyes of these guards to get your word in for your people. God can do those kind of things. Matthew Henry said, those who are the enemies to the preaching of the gospel and the persecutors of the faithful preachers of it are unreasonable and wicked men. They act against all the rules and laws of reason and religion and are guilty of the greatest absurdity and impiety. I want to give you this and I'm all done. Half of those who are called, and, and these, are not, these are not documentable statistics, but I've heard these all my life. Half of those who are called to missions never actually prepare to go. And about half of those who prepare and go on deputation never finish deputation and make it to the field. And about half of those who do make it to the field only spend one term there and they don't go back after that. And you know what the natural inclination of the church here in America is? Well, I guess they just weren't, just weren't tough enough. They should have prayed more. They should have walked with God more. They should have read their Bible more. They should have had more faith. May I suggest that instead of rebuking them, we rebuke ourselves for our lack of prayer. Paul ends this passage of Scripture with a wonderful assurance. But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. I want to challenge you with two things tonight. Would you please commit to praying for the advance of the gospel and those who are proclaiming the gospel around this world? Commit to praying for one another, as we talked about at the beginning. Commit to praying for those who are taking the gospel to hard places and God's protection and intervention in their ministries and commit to praying for more laborers who will follow suit.